welcome to the Max Muth Theatre and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. We are gearing up for our end of year extravaganza when our contributors gather together to answer your questions. So please send us your questions. You can find us on Twitter at M-A-X-A-M-O-O, on Facebook at MaximuNY, or on email at lindsay at maximu.com. Ask us anything. Enjoy this week's show. Okay, let's get started. Let's just start with introductions, David. Hey, it's David Levy. If you listen to Maximu, you know me. And this is Lindsay. That introduction applies to me as well. So it's been a difficult week. Somehow we managed to go see some theater in that time. (laughs) We chose such uplifting, (laughs) happy shows to fit our mood. I do wonder in times like these what the role of people who go to theater is (laughs) i I gotta tell you the best decision i made this week was when i woke up wednesday morning feeling awful about everything is i bought matinee tickets for that day and i went to see falsettos because i knew i would be in a room full of hundreds of people who felt just like me Mm -hmm. and it would give us like an appropriate public place to cry together yeah uh and it was very cathartic and and you could feel it from the audience you could feel it from the cast um there's a song in the show where the heroine says i'm tired of all the happy men who rule the world and the show just stopped dead with screams of applause several times during that one number and it was just it was like what we needed to do together and so you know uh I understand some people who need theater as escapism at times like this, but also theater as catharsis is like absolutely the right choice for me. Yeah, that's great. I haven't felt that at the theater. I've every time I've, I, we saw great shows and I think we're going to have good discussions about them, but being in the theater has not provided me any solace this week. The only thing that has is participating in marches and protests and shouting with, thousands of other people discontent so that's helped some I'm actually thinking a lot about you know just the role of people who I mean I get that in these moments artists make art and art can change culture and art can influence politics and society I don't think we need to litigate whether artists should make art right now like that's just obvious but for someone in my position as an appreciator of art. I'm not totally sure what my role is. Well, I can in tell this you f- space. For one thing, there is a strong likelihood that arts funding is going to get cut significantly in the next two years. Yes. Uh, so, for those who have the means to increase your support of the arts, uh, among a hundred thousand other things that also need increased support, like this is one. <laughs> yes. Were I wealthy, I would do that. <laughs> but for now. For the past couple of years, all I've really given the arts is my time and attention. But now it feels like there are like many more dire things that need my time and attention. So I'm just not sure how to divvy it up. I don't know if others are facing that same quandary. Maybe, maybe not. If you are, please find me on Twitter and let's talk about it together and figure out how to navigate this space in our world now. Okay. So we saw three shows, plus we went to a PS122 long table that we're going to talk about. So let's just get started with Sagittarius Ponderosa. 
Sagittarius Ponderosa is the latest production from Natco, the National Asian American Theater Company. It is a new play by MJ Kaufman, directed by Ken Rushmall. And uh, it's funny, my previous experience with Natco is them as a company that took sort of classic plays that were generally not written for an Asian American cast and presenting them with an Asian American cast. Uh, they did a really excellent production of Awaken Sing that I saw at the public about a year ago. Um, you know, in, in their history, they've done Falsetto Land twice. They've done Our Town, stuff like that. Last year, for I believe the first time, they presented an original play, which was Lloyd Suh's Charles Francis Chen Jr.'s Exotic Oriental Murder Mystery, which is, as you can tell, a play written for an Asian American cast. This, I think, is the first time that they've done like a brand new contemporary play that is not written specifically for an Asian American cast. Sagittarius Ponderosa is a family drama about a family in the Pacific Northwest in transition. Uh, their son is home for an indeterminate amount of time at, at sort of a pivotal moment in his life where he's not sure what to do next and also figuring out a, a gender transition. Uh, his parents know him as their daughter. The father is sort of in denial about the state of his illness, which I want to say is, is diabetes. Is that right? And, you know, and then the, there's a mother and a grandmother who are both sort of uh, at loose ends of how to deal with this upheaval in their lives. Oh, and uh, and there's a, another character who is a, a graduate student in forestry who the son uh, has uh, a bit of a, a dalliance with <laughs> out in in the forest. Um, <sighs> That's not a euphemism. That's right. literally what happens. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the uh, this takes place in the Pacific Northwest, and they're right near this forest full of these ancient. Uh, ancient old ponderosa trees and um archer which is the character's name goes out there to kind of escape his family and it has sort of this very shakespearean function of being the forest where uh he can go out and find himself and and fall in love and uh, i i don't know how i felt about this play i i know i was glad that natco was doing it i thought it was like a great step for this company that I love a lot. I think MJ Kaufman is a promising playwright, but I didn't feel like this play was quite there yet. It felt like it raised some interesting questions, but it, I don't think it necessarily explored them in a way that was deep enough or satisfying enough for me. That said, I'm someone who, you know, has read a lot and seen a lot of stories by and about transgender people. And I feel like maybe for people who this was a new kind of story for them, maybe they would have felt differently. But for me, it, uh, the, I think there were, the, the brave thing about this play was that it didn't feel the need to resolve all of these moments of transition. Like even by the end of the play, it's not really clear if Archer's going to come out to his family, if, you know, w how much uh, he feels the need to, um, wait, that's wrong. You're giving me a look. He no, I wasn't. It, I wasn't. Oh, I'm formulating my I'm own thought now, in my head. There's, there's like an epilogue that takes place a year later. And now I'm trying to remember if, if he's actually out by then. Uh, but, but, 
but it, it deals it deals quite seriously with the question of like what are your what are your obligations to yourself versus to your family versus to the world and i i just i don't know i think i would have liked to see it push a little harder on those uh i don't know Lindsay, what do you think your reading of this play is a little different from mine which i think is very fascinating so the character at the center of this play is known as Angela by his family and Archer by his friends. And, but a lot of the transgender storyline in this play is subtext. It's not spoken explicitly. You just witness a person who happens to be transgender going through the family dynamic of when a parent is ill, um, when you have an older relative struggling with lucidity, when you have a romance that is burgeoning. All of these things are things that we have witnessed through time and memoriam in the theater, on TV, in movies. And here we see an individual going through these very familiar steps of life who is transgender. And there, that word is actually not used in the play. There's never a, oh my God, you're a transgender moment. But to me, it wasn't because Archer wasn't quote unquote out about being transgender. I actually thought that that conversation may have taken place maybe sometime preceding the moment we were seeing or uh, maybe he was, like I said, quote unquote out, but his family was struggling with that. And so I really thought this was just seeing a person who lives his life like we all do with kind of open secrets, even regardless of whether we've taken that step officially into or out of the closet, his family because of his appearance and his behavior understands on some level, it may be conscious, it may be subconscious. And so I, what I really loved about this play was that we were just witnessing a person in their life and it wasn't all about the fact that they were transgender. Watching this play, you just are seeing a person live their life as opposed to seeing a transgender person live their life. Um, but it's a layer. Right. It's I, not I, the I think it's probably somewhere between what I saw headline. and what you saw. Like, <laughs> because I think that, I think there, you're right that it's, it's maybe a little more in the subtext or what I would call the acting text as opposed to the spoken text. But, uh, you know, certainly there's, there is this underlying tension of do his parents just think he's a lesbian? Like there's, there's, some exchanges between the parents, I think the grandparent about, well, we don't really expect Angie to get married. You know, that, that might not be the life laid out for her. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I, the one thing where I think you're dead on is, and, and probably the most beautiful thing about this play for me was how Archer's gender did not come up at all in the romance that Archer has with the man that she meets in the forest. And we know that he, the the boyfriend I wish I remembered his name, um, uh, Owen. We know that 
Owen sees Archer as a man because we hear him refer to him as him. Uh, but we don't have to have any kind of like hand-wringing about, oh my God, you're a man, but you don't have the parts that I expected. Like, it's just, it's like, hey, I, I met you. I fell in love with you. We had a thing, just like any other two people who meet and fall in love and have a thing. And that that actually was, was uh, again, like not a bold-faced point of the show, but but I found very effective and moving. Let's talk about craft for a minute. I don't know if you read the interview in the New York Times with MJ and two other transgender playwrights, but MJ talked about how all people talk about is transgender storylines and not craft. So let's talk about craft. There is a character in this play played by a puppet, and I did not understand why that was happening. It made no sense to me. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. Uh, I thought maybe it was just because they didn't want to like pay to have another actor and that was a way to like <laughs> make it really clear that that it wasn't there was not supposed to be any kind of like confusion between the character of the father and the character of the grandmother's boyfriend yeah uh, even though they're played by the same actor but like gosh i don't know yeah it didn't get that at all it added this sort of layer of magical realism that I feel like is infused in any performance where you have puppets and humans interacting. And I was like, this just seems very foreign to this story. Although there is again, like not, there's like a little undercurrent of magic throughout this show. The, the, the Ponderosa tree was sculpted out of this sort of like gauzy white fabric that was lit from behind that made it seem like, uh, like a shrine almost or like you know and and there were these projections of stars and there uh, and and there's all this talk of astrology with Sagittarius being uh not just the title of the play but also the star sign of Archer and uh, and where Archer gets the name Archer from because Sagittarius is the Archer um and so like uh uh and it's funny too because like I, I am not into astrology at all, but I am into Tumblr where people are very into astrology. Um, and I've noticed lately uh, a lot of like eye rolling about Sagittarians um, and as sort of like uh, particularly unsuitable for dating, uh, which is an interesting layer here. So I think there is, I, I think, I think maybe there's something about just the magic of real life and 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 the ways in which the world is is unpredictable and 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 beautiful and magical as the world i don't know uh to me the world being unpredictable is realism not magic so i guess i hear what you're saying and how you interpreted those elements of the production to hint at the sort of fantasy or magicalness theme in the show i just interpreted them as like staging and scenery (laughs) (laughs) how you do rain in the theater well but like when you have a a set that is otherwise very naturalistic why is the tree not brown i don't know art (laughs) (laughs) okay so the other thing i want to mention is I mean this is like no surprise, but Mia Kadigbak, oh, wow, I love her. she's a remarkable actress. I mean her performance here is by no means the center of attention, but it's so subtle and sensitive and incredibly touching. She just having the privilege of being in a tiny theater with her and watching her on stage is awesome. 
and really this whole cast is uh, exceptional. Yes. Yeah, there, there's not a single person in this cast who doesn't rise to Mia's level. Like they're all um, Bex Kwan, who plays Archer, is outstanding. Uh, Glenn Kubota, who plays the father, I just thought was uh, you know in a part that could have so easily been a caricature. I thought he he brought you know real dimensionality to it. Uh, it's just the whole the whole cast. Yes. Okay, so Sagittarius Ponderosa is at Three-Legged Dog through November 19th. So as of your hearing this, if you're hearing it the day we publish or within two days of it, you still have a chance to see it. The tickets are $40. It's a short play. It's only about 65, 70 minutes. I have seen tickets on TDF for around $20, so there are discounts available. Okay, next is... Don't you fucking say a word. This is a play by Andy Braggin, directed by Lee Sunday Evans at 59 East 59th. It is a story narrated by two women about a tennis match that devolved into a fight between their boyfriends. And it has a lot to do with tennis, but also nothing to do with tennis. I think it's really an examination of the secret lives of men, which is a topic I find particularly fascinating. It is an examination of masculinity and competitiveness. But also competitiveness among the women. Yes, Ultimately, we get to the women and their own competitiveness. But I thought that for the most part, it was, even though the story was told by women, it was really a foc- really focused on the men in terms of the story, but the women in terms of the performance. There are two women and two men in the cast, and the women are principally telling the story, and then there are intervening scenes flashing back to the history of these men their tennis friendship tennis competition uh devolving into something of sort of nemeses these are topics i find endlessly fascinating so i really like this play i thought the performances were fantastic i think um it's worth mentioning all four of the actors because they were all great with a very special shout out to Janine Sorales and her will- her ability to make very minuscule eye movements and face ex- facial expressions that are hilarious. Um, so the cast is Michael Brown, Jennifer Lim, who we recently saw in Caught, also directed by Lee Sunday Evans, Bravish Patel and Janine Sorales, as I mentioned. What did you think, David? I thought it was too much sports. <laughs> like, um, I there's a lot of tennis in this, and as someone who like could not give two shits about tennis or any sports, like it was really hard for me to pay attention during the tennis scenes. Like, oh, it's, interesting. Because uh, no, I was thinking there was so little tennis. Oh God, it was so much sports. <laughs> um, and also, it was like a lot of telling, not showing. And I found whenever there were scenes that actually were taking place between people, I was really engaged. Whenever we went back to the sort of narration of the story, I I, I just wasn't that interested. 
Wow, I think I literally felt the opposite. As long as those two women were up there telling us a story, I was raptured. When we got to reenacting a little tennis, I was like, this is boring. Well, I... I I liked the scenes where the I shouldn't say it was boring. It was never boring. Sorry. No, but I, I know what you mean. Back. But like, I like the scenes where it was the women interacting with each other as characters, not as narrators. Uh-huh. And I like the scenes where the men were interacting with each other as men, not as tennis competitors. Uh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I didn't dislike the play. I just wasn't as enthusiastic as as you were. Like I, I, I agree that it was this really interesting examination of of competitiveness and friendship, and in the ways in which masculine fueled competitiveness and friendship is different from feminine fueled competitiveness and friendship. And uh, I disagree that that comes in later. In the very first scene, we get the competitiveness between the two women where we know that they knew each other in college, but they weren't really friends because one of them was popular and one of them wasn't. And one of them invites the other one to yoga, which is already like dripping with judgment in that whole interaction. Uh, And I thought that really set up that dynamic to carry it through the whole play. You know, you're totally right about that now that I think about it, but that did not click for me until literally the last five seconds of the show. Oh, wow. That's funny. Cause that to me was like the hook into the play, oh, but that's probably because I'm just not interested in straight men. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm so endlessly fascinated by them. <laughs> um, uh, what else? I, listen, uh, the fact that this was uh, a multiracial cast, I think, is commendable. And I want to point out it was also something that the playwright insisted on in the script. In the, oh, how do you know that? Because they emailed us the script. Oh, and you read it. Uh, I just I happened to look at the first few pages and there's a footnote on the first page that says this cast should be as diverse as the city of New York. It doesn't specify like who needs to be what race or mm-hmm. whatever, but mm-hmm. just that uh, it should be a diverse cast. And I thought that was really important and effective, even though it's not explicitly remarked upon in the in the text otherwise. I think it's also really great that like the um, I don't know, like the 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 sort of like popular together successful not nerdy one was the Asian woman, which is, you know, a little bit against stereotype. And just, you know, I thought that was, I thought the casting was very, like beyond the fact that these are four exceptional actors, I thought that like that was good and thoughtful and, and worked. Do you know anything about this? Uh, So Andy Briggan is the playwright. It's also the producer under the um, rubric of Andy Briggan theater projects, which in the program we learn is sort of an outgrowth of the 13P project. Do you know anything more about this? About him? About and him work? and about this this uh, new endeavor of his producing? I don't. There's a little description on the back of the um, playbill, but it just basically says what you just said, so I don't have any more information. I mean, I will say that I'm certainly... This is their first production. I'm interested in seeing where else it goes. I'm interested... You know, particularly in seeing who besides Andy they end up producing. They're, you know, they say they have a quote unquote deinstitutionalized model um, where they want to support artists directly without a specific like template as to how they achieve that support or achieve production. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, we'll see what they do next. Okay, next play. Among- do you want to talk about dates oh. and? Do I want to talk about what? Dates and ticket prices? Oh, yes, I do. Thank you for reminding me. 
This plays through December 4th, and the tickets are $35. And it's at 59 East 59th? Yes. In the B Theater, right? Yes, yeah. where I see most of my theater at 59 East 59th. I feel like that's like the dominant theater that I attend there. That's interesting. Well, you know, it's funny. So they have three theaters, A, B, and yeah. C, and, and A is the biggest and C is the smallest. And I feel like uh, it's also like A has the most populist stuff, and C has the most experimental stuff you know it's interesting also i don't think i've ever been in theater a there really yeah i saw i was trying to remember this i know i've seen at least one show that was like uh i have like almost no memory of it except that it was one of those things that was like one part music performance and one part like dance acrobatic something uh-huh. I, yeah I, I couldn't even tell you what the name of it is i just like i was like oh right that's what i've been in that theater <laughs> It was like, you know, for people who like really like Stump or Cirque du Soleil or I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Now, Among the Dead. Among the Dead is a new play at the Maie Theater Company at Here Arts in Soho. And it is by Hansel Jung. Um, and it is a play that takes place in two time periods. in like Three time periods. Three time periods? Yes. Uh-oh. That are very helpfully laid out right here in the. Oh, I was gonna say like I know there's so there's nineteen. 19- They're too dominant for sure. Right, so 1944. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> um, at the uh, end of World War Two, um, in oh, it's in Myanmar. Interesting. I thought it was in Korea. <laughs> um, I don't know a lot about the Pacific Theater. <laughs> Um, uh, and then in 1975 in Korea, uh, South Korea, and then also uh, a little bit in 1955 in South Korea. And it is the story of one family where there is an American GI who rescues, she's a South Korean woman who has been basically enslaved by the Japanese army um, as, I don't know what the correct term for it is, but basically a sex slave. And he rescues her and they have a bit of a romance and they have a baby together and she thinks that he he promises to take her back to America and then at the last minute freaks out and says I'll come back for you in a year but she manages to to thrust the baby on him so he ends up raising the baby and it's unclear it's pretty clear that he's not going to come back it's unclear when he does come back although we know he did at some point because in 1975, that baby is now in her 30s and is back. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, did a quick math there. Uh, and is now back to retrieve his remains because he's passed away. The only other thing I think I want to say is that the other character in this play is Jesus Christ, yeah. who is like quite literally the deus ex machina of the play uh, that I want to discuss. But I want to hear what you have to say about this play first. My thoughts on this play are, one, technically so well produced. Yes. This is not an easy play to realize on a stage. There, as David mentioned, three different time periods. And in the production we saw, they were really expertly delineated. And there was a ton of sound and light cues that... Because of the way here is set up, you actually hear them being called. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting like which, right next to the which stage. Which is not manager. ideal, but like no demerits for that. Like that's just the state of 
producing theater in a very small theater. I, I just thought it was so well executed from a technical design um, production directing perspective. I, love I really, the, really enjoyed that. The director also used like the dimension of distance from the audience. Mm-hmm. Like some things happen very close to the audience. Some things happen very far away from the audience. And, and it wasn't just about the convenience of how the set was designed. It felt like a very purposeful choice that worked extraordinarily well. Yes. There are, there were also surprising elements to the design, which I won't spoil, but characters would pop out of spaces where you weren't expecting them. And I really loved that. I liked, all four performances. Um, somebody we've mentioned on the podcast before, Diana O's in this. She gives a very wonderful performance that's unlike anything I've ever seen her do. I've mostly seen her do her own performance art, um, but here she's straight up acting as an actress, and I thought she was great. I thought all. Oh, let's just name them since we did that in the other one. Uh, Will Dagger plays Jesus. Uh, Julian Hanzelka Kim plays Anna. That's the daughter. Diana O. Oh, her character's name is number four. And Mickey Theus is Luke Woods. I also thought that the writing was great. And I very much enjoyed the way the parts got woven together. But I felt like we were hearing a story. We were getting A, C, and F. But we weren't getting B and D. We weren't. We didn't have a, quite enough information to weave it all together, and maybe I shouldn't have focused on the elements that I couldn't piece together. But at the end, I was like, I just don't understand how the GI and the baby got like what happened for the rest of their lives. Yeah, <laughs> like what happened to them, and how did. What happened to the mom ultimately? Right, like at some point we know the GI reunited with the mom. Wait, do we? Well, otherwise, how did the mom? So we're going to get into some spoilers here. Yeah. Um, so it, at the end, it's revealed that the mother was the one who who dropped off the journal. Right. Okay. So let's back up one second and give a little more staging to the story, which is that. It's told largely in flashback. So many plays in flashback this week. And what you have is the daughter returning to South Korea to pick up her father's remains. And a journal is mysteriously delivered to her. By Jesus. Yes. (laughs) By the Jesus bellboy. And she reads it. And as she reads it, scenes from the journal are reenacted. And then those are... And she gets placed into them as as her mother. Yes, as the mother figure. Which is maybe because she also smoked some very strong weed. Yes. But maybe because of Jesus and maybe just for theatricality's sake. Could be any of those things. <laughs> and then also intercut are scenes of the mother on a bridge waiting for the father to return. Um, and so you have tons of time and space jumps. And so... Um, what, what I'm not saying here is that they failed to execute the time and space jumps between those spaces. That's not what I'm saying. I actually thought they did that very well. But what I couldn't get is the connections from the A to the C to the right. F. Right. We don't know. We know that, that the father raised this little girl, presumably as a single father, 
uh, maybe maybe he remarried maybe he married someone in America. We don't know. Right. Uh, we know at some point he went back to South Korea because that's where his ashes are. Right. But we don't know what her relationship was with him, really. Except that there was clearly filled with tension. Right. We don't, but like we don't know why, or right. like we don't know anything about what her actual relationship beyond infancy was with him. Yeah. Um, we don't know. I guess you're right. We don't know if he reunited with the mother. I'm making an assumption because the, when the diary gets delivered, it comes with the mother's phone number, but it's delivered by Jesus, although Jesus makes it sound like. The father had dropped dropped it off before he died, but it's not clear. First of all, it's not clear because it's Jesus whether or not we're supposed to take that at face value. It's not, right. you know, not so that yeah. There's just there's a lot of uh, to me those those questions didn't bother me as much as they bothered you. Mm-hmm. I think I was bothered by something entirely different. Oh, just do tell. So first of all, what I liked about this play is it reminded me a lot of Miss Saigon. If you could take all of the Orientalism out of Miss Saigon, if you had told it from the perspective, and obviously this is about World War II and about Korea and not about Vietnam, but the the sort of big plot points of the story are very similar, but it gets rid of the white savior stuff. It gets, it just, you know, it, it sort of places even like the, the human trafficking element in, in I think a much more understandable and and awful context like all like it, it in many ways it feels like like if an asian or asian american writer saw miss saigon and was like fuck that i can do this so much better like this might be what they'd write that said for something that that works so hard to undo all of that like cultural imperialism i had so much trouble with the jesus stuff um and I've been trying to unpack for myself why this is, and I think there's two sides to it. On the one hand, there is nothing that drips more of like white Western cultural imperialism than the imposition of Jesus onto people from Asia. <laughs> like, especially the way it happens in the story is like literally Jesus is portrayed as like the best buddy slash conscience of the American GI. And when he meets this uh Korean woman who's suffering, he gives her his cross, which also, in effect, gives her Jesus, who then becomes her, like, companion confessor, um, who then, like, talks her out of suicide. And, like, just, like, it, it, look, I'm not Christian. Um, And it it just, it, it just sort of was, like, all of the worst aspects of, like, sort of that, like, imperialist Christianity felt, like, layered onto the story for me. And then on top of that, theologically, it is so troubling to suggest that, like, this man survived the war because he had Jesus with him. This woman, you know, was able to overcome her situation because she had Jesus with her. Like, what about all the people who didn't survive? It's just it's 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 like a really um, kind of simple and childish and 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 bad and and harmful and painful theology. Uh, And it just felt like it's such a lower level than all the other aspects of this play which felt so smart and high functioning fascinating okay so here was my interpretation of the jesus character who first of all is the comic relief in the play um and so that i was very grateful for on just like a fundamental level to at times be laughing during 
a week of difficultness in a play about difficult things. Right. Although it's interesting, like Jesus was the comic relief, and yet this was like the most sincere, not ironic use of Jesus in a play that yes. I can think of that I've voluntarily seen. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so let me unpack or try to unpack my view of that Jesus character in this play, myself being an atheist. So... It was definitely called Jesus or at times God or, and even there was a Holy ghost joke at one point. Was there? Yeah. There's like a Holy Trinity. This guy is all of the things. And the way I thought about it was that people make up secret friends (laughs) to help them in difficult times. And the characters in this play thought up secret mythical friends to help them go through difficult things. The version that they made up was the dominant Christian narrative, which is very strong in the United States and also very strong in South Korea. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't surprising to me that they created that figure as their secret friend. Except it's made really explicitly clear that the South Korean character was not Christian before she met this guy. Right. Like she doesn't know Jesus' name. Which is probably a common narrative in Korea at the time periods we're talking about, right? So I guess I didn't, even though it is explicit that this person is Jesus, to me, it was more a comment on the psychological value of having secret friends (laughs) than it is (laughs) on believing in Christianity. And this is just totally me imposing my own it can't actually have been a God slash Jesus figure into the narrative. <laughs> yeah. I think you're, I think, I, I mean, your reading is valid because it's how you feel, but I, I think you are. As is your reading right. is valid because of how you feel <laughs> but, coming but, to the story with your background. Right. But I, I think that to the extent that we care about authorial intent, I think you are uh, Oh, I a little farther afield. <laughs> don't agree necessarily with that statement well if you because i don't see this play as being a pro-christianity play i don't think it's necessarily pro-christianity but i think it takes christian belief sincerely in a way that i don't think your reading does i guess my thinking is that the people in the play genuinely feel and believe the things that they are saying and acting out. I don't think that the play is judging them for that. And I guess I'm okay with that because people do what they have to do to get through their lives. Like I was actually, I think partly because of the nature of the week, like I maybe would have felt differently in a different week, Mm. but I was like, 
yeah, people do the best they can and these characters are doing the best they can and they're making up like fictional sidekicks to help them endure trauma and war. I mean, what was even was interesting about that is the GI Luke by the time he gives Jesus to number four, he's like done with Jesus. Like mm-hmm. he says, he's like, I don't believe in you. Like, <laughs> like right out there. And like, it's, I don't know. It's, it, it's obviously like more complicated. Like it, it, they, they all have like, it's it more, it's more complicated than I think I made it sound in my initial, like discomfort with this because the idea that he, you're right. Like the way that he hands off Jesus to her is not in a missionary kind of way. It's in a, like, I'm done with him. If you want to keep this necklace because it might mean something to you, like go ahead. Um, but I also think that the, there's a different level between what the characters say and do and what the play says and does. Yes. Um, and so, uh, which is why I feel like even if he, even if the characters are seeing it in the way that you describe. I don't know that the play sees it that way to the extent that a play can see something. Or right. Have a point but of I view. guess my question is, is, is there a problem fundamentally with a play having that perspective on religion? Oh, is there a problem? No. Does that mean I have to like it? Sure. No, <laughs> but I guess I'm, I'm asking if there is something, some, if there's a fundamental, objection to the perspective or is that actually the perspective the play has or is someone presenting us with a play that has I think in my view a kind of a unique perspective on religion that is not necessarily one we see very much, especially in the theater. Right. Like, I don't think it's a fair criticism for me to be disappointed that the play does not have, like, a more thorough critique of, like, Christianity as imperialism. <laughs> like, right. Like, like, I don't think that's what this play is meant to be or to do. Um, that doesn't change the fact that that I couldn't stop thinking about that while seeing the play. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I don't know. Listen, I thought it was... Uh, there was a lot more to chew on than I think I anticipated ha- going into the play. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a good answer. I'm so glad you raised that issue because it had kind of escaped my top responses to the play, but it's a very interesting element of the play. If anyone who's listening sees the play and wants to weigh in on what you think Jesus is doing there, what the play has to say about religion, uh, please share it with us on Twitter or on Facebook. Definitely. Okay, this is Among the Dead. The tickets are $25. It's at Here Arts Center, and there are performances through November 26th. Okay, our final topic for discussion is an event that David and I attended called A Long Table. This is actually a series of discussions that the theater PS122 has been hosting in the city for, I think, about the past year. I've been to three of these discussions, and the one we attended was on cultural equity. And so I'll set up 
what these events look like and then we can talk a little bit about the content of the specific one we attended um can you also sort of place it into context of what the other ones were about sure so the first one was about um the aids crisis and the lasting impact on the new york city arts community which we all know it had an impact but the extent of that impact i think is far greater than many of us realize. Um, That was a fantastic conversation that was very eye-opening. The second one I attended was about whether there is the possibility of partnerships between artistic communities and business communities and how they can work together in a mutually beneficial uh, capacity. Then there's this one that we went to, Cultural Equity, and there's one coming up that I'll just go ahead and mention. It's at the end of November, and it is on art and technology and equity. That's on November 29th at 330 Hudson Street, which is like the TED conferences facility. These events are free, but you do need to RSVP in advance because they do sell out. I believe all of them have sold out, and they seem to be getting more and more popular. So... The long table is actually a piece of performance art. It was conceived by the artist Lois Weaver. And there is a list of etiquette rules that are read at the beginning of the event and distributed to everyone in attendance. And it's almost more of a poem than anything else. So I'll just go ahead and read the etiquette rules. There is no beginning. It is a performance of a breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Those those seated at the table are the performers. The menu is up to you. Talk is the only course. There is no hostess. It is a democracy. To participate, take a seat at the table. If the table is full, you can request a seat. Once you leave the table, you can come back. There can be silence. You can break the silence with a question. You can write your questions on the table. There can be laughter. There is no conclusion. So at each of these I've attended, there's a long table in the middle of the room surrounded by chairs. And then there are audience chairs. And the event has been kicked off by Vallejo, the artistic director at PS122. He sort of says a few introductory remarks on the topic to be discussed. And then there's silence until the other people at the table chime in. The event we went to was on Monday, the day before Election Day. So um, I would say there was like hopeful anxiety in the room. I think it would have been a much different event had it taken place after the election. It was at Losanda. Loisaida. Loisaida. Sorry for my pronunciation, um, which is in the East Village. And there were artists, there were arts administrators, there were board members, there were hangers-on like us in the room. And we talked about what cultural equity is. Uh, Did we, though? Well, (laughs) eventually, yeah, I would say. Um, We talked about fears, concerns, hopes for what it would look like to live in a world with more cultural equity and for a long time during the conversation I felt like we were talking about just really 
high level ideas. Very abstract. Very abstract. The highest level of sort of theory and combined with sort of personal experience, hopes and fears. And at one point, somebody said, well, what does cultural equity look like at the Met or the Guggenheim? And as soon as that question got asked, to me, the conversation had a much more concrete grounding in let's not try to come up with the theory of cultural equity and how we might obtain equity across time, space, all artists, all mediums. It was just how do we tackle it at individual institutions? And I think that for me is at least an easier starting point to the conversation, which is like, if you have a cultural institution, like, you know, pick your institution and look at the staff, look at the events they're doing, look at their audience. How do you start to make it so that it's more equitable? So there were a couple of interesting elements to this. One is that some of the people in the room represented uh, what we might call culturally specific uh, organizations, although that term got challenged, rightfully so. Uh, but the you know places like, although the, I don't think they were there, but places like NACO, which is specifically set out to be an Asian American cultural uh, organization, mm-hmm. versus places like the Bronx Museum, which uh, is not culturally specific in that uh, their mandate is some somewhat broader, presumably. Um, part of the reason why that term culturally specific organization got challenged is because um, there are plenty of white culturally specific organizations that don't think of them as such, don't think of themselves as such. Uh, But I think one of the things that people weren't quite willing to get into, probably because it wasn't the right time or place, is like, so what's the difference between a white culturally specific organization and something that should have a broader mandate? Like, what's to say that the New York Philharmonic is or isn't a white culturally specific organization, because uh, the question of culture of classical music did come up as a a particularly challenging uh, area. Um, I you know listen it was so which for me part of the the inherent challenge in talking about cultural equity is that there's there's sort of like a, a unit problem here. Like what is the unit of cultural equity? Do we want, does an institution need cultural equity? Does a city need cultural equity? Does the nation's culture need culture, like nationwide do we need cultural equity? Uh, and what does it look like? Because, you know, if, if it's per institution, does that mean that there's not a place for NACO? Or if it's by city, does that mean that the existence of NACO lets the roundabout off the hook? Or are there different, or, or or is there something about, um, you know, the difference in size and budget and power and and cultural dominance that that changes that answer, which I think is quite obviously the the answer there, um, and that certainly we know that it needs to be a smaller unit than nationwide because like, you know all of the Spanish-speaking theater in Texas is not going to help Spanish speakers in New York. Um, but, you know, is citywide enough if if there's, um, you know, great things happening in 
Brooklyn, is that accessible to people from the Bronx? Like, it seems like no. Uh, so, you know, that for me, I guess because I'm, because I'm a pragmatist, because I come from a background of working in nonprofit organizations, like these are the questions that like, I really want to get into that weren't discussed that like, which I think was where my frustration about this being very abstract comes from is like, you know, how are we going to form an action plan if we can't even figure out like what, like sort of the, the biggest, sort of like the most general questions of what kind of action we need to take. But it wasn't a place that was, I mean, it wasn't a conversation that was intended to do that. Right. Convened to set out an action plan, but like that's immediately where I want to go. Right. The question I always want to say is like, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Right. Like where's the, so what part of this? But I will say that as an audience member, I felt like my role there in listening to the concerns and ideas of others in the room, it was valuable. I, learned a lot sitting there and it informed my ideas and opinions going forward which i think is the principal idea behind these long table discussions which is not this is by no means the first conversation ever to be had on this topic (laughs) indeed um there were some reading materials distributed in advance of the event and those were excellent and i will link to them in the show page for this episode, I highly recommend them. And one of them was highly critical of diversity panels and the topic of constantly talking about, but never doing anything about diversity. And nevertheless, I took a lot of valuable information away from this conversation and do hope that we continue to make more concrete progress towards not just diversifying, but equalizing our cultural institutions that I think the answer to do we need it at a organizational citywide or global scale is yes, yes, and yes, and all yes at every level. And the way you make the judgments, whether something is equitable is relative to its circumstances. So we have to not apply a single measuring tape to every situation. Right. And also I think that one of the, really smart things that came out of this conversation or maybe was there going into this conversation is that, you know, there's different levels at which action happens. And so there's not just what do like presenting organizations do, but also granting organizations and funding organizations. And if equity is being funded, then it doesn't necessarily like it. it if the, if alternatives are being funded, then it doesn't matter if there are quote unquote mainstream institutions that aren't, doing enough because other things are making up for it Mm -hmm. i guess uh or at least that's one potential outcome right one topic i'm very interested in on this subject is the role of media and how the decline in the media as a whole and specifically in arts and cultural journalism is affecting the ability of these culturally specific institutions to get the attention they need to attract audiences, donors, patrons, and artists. And Uh, it's also some of the, we'll call them white institutions that were kind of lamenting how hard it is to reach audiences beyond their, you know, already present white donor base. Um, You know, I think that's all tied into that. Like, how do you, you know, it's not enough to just put on a play or put up an exhibition. It's how do you actually do the engagement work and how do you do it in a way that feels 
authentic and not like it's just a one-off like okay we're gonna pander to you and then forget about you yeah that's a huge problem in large cultural institutions in new york city i'm sure it's a problem everywhere so i'm curious to know why i would love for them to do one of these long tables on media and art and equity and to see how artists and arts administrators feel like that influences their ability to be to achieve equity mm-hmm. um if others listening have talk thoughts on that topic we would love to hear them and i know that this conversation was live streamed do you know if it's also archived if people want to listen to it now i don't know i'll look it up and see if there's a link i can find and let people attach i'll, I'll attach it to the show page if there is one great yeah. okay next week is uh thanksgiving so we'll be off and then we will be organizing our annual year-end extravaganza which means that we want your questions that we will put to our contributors and get you answers to your burning questions so send them to us at maximu m-a-x-a-m-o-o on twitter or email them to us at lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, at maximu.com. Or send them to any of our contributors via Twitter. Or you can go to our Facebook page and send us questions there. That is NY. So please, please, please let us know what you want us to discuss. We will have our most frequent contributors on that episode. Um and we will answer your questions and we will talk about our favorite shows of the year, worst moments of the year. Oh my God. <laughs> all of those things as relate to the theater. But is there anything you're going to see at the theater coming up, David, that you're excited about? I have remarkably little on my calendar. Well, I'm leaving our recording right now to go see a matinee of The Harvest at Lincoln Center, which I'm so excited to see because oh, I love Samuel okay. Hunter. I love that play. And the last thing I'm doing before I take off for Thanksgiving is to go see Ride the Cyclone at MCC. Um, And for Thanksgiving, I'm going to be in Los Angeles. And I'm very excited to go see uh, Michael Arden's new production of Merrily We Roll Along at the Wallace Annenberg Center. So I'm going to see Daniel Kitson at St. Anne's this week. I'm also going to see the the new Lynn Nottage play Sweat at the Public Theater. And I have something on my calendar for Playwrights Horizons, but no idea what it is. Just seeing the next thing they're putting up. Rancho Vallejo, is that it? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even have the title in my calendar. Uh, there's actually two other plays that I have friends involved with that I want to see and have to figure out if I can get to them. Uh, one is a burial place. Uh, and the other is, oh, Matt Barbo's play, which has a Spanish title, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something like El Coqui Espectacular. Mm. Uh, which is his uh, Puerto Rican superhero play, which uh, was funded by the Kevin Spacey Foundation, which cool. I really need to get my ass over to. I know Liz saw it this week. Oh, fun. Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you in early December. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Max New Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MaxMoo. David is at It's D. Levy. 
And I'm at Lindsay Behrens. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We will be back December 7th with our year-end extravaganza. Don't forget to send us your questions. We'll see you then. Theatrical Media.